Well, good afternoon. I'm really glad that you're here today. You're here to worship the God of all creation with us. And we are actually in week two of our study of Philippians. If you remember, this was a letter that was written by Paul while he was in some sort of house arrest or prison. And he's writing from Rome uh, to the city of Philippi. So last time we gathered, we actually looked through the entire thing. We read the entire book together to get a wide angle scope of what it was. And we looked at verses one and two with the a little more detail. Today we're going to pick up in verse 3 and we're going to read through verse 8 and we're going to look at this in in a little more detail. So if you have your Bibles with you today, open up the Philippians. We're going to begin reading in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonments and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord shall stand forever. The first portion of our text that we're looking at shows us just how appreciative Paul is for the church in Philippi. For those dear brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, starting in verse 3, and I'm going to read it again because I want you to be immediately familiar with this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Simply put, when Paul thinks about the Philippians, he thanks God for them, for their partnership in the gospel. Remember, Paul is in prison or in house arrest, and the reality for him is that many have forgotten about him at this point. I tend to think of his name as just being huge everywhere at that time as he traveled around from place to place, but because of his arrest, he's not out traveling from town to town like he once was. Uh, He's less prominent in that sense. Yet the Philippians have remained partners with him, and he is thankful for that. Their partnership with him is expressed in a few different ways. For one, it's spiritual encouragement. Just knowing that there is a church praying for him and caring for him is a great comfort to him. It's communication. They've taken the time to actually know what is going on with Paul. Later in this letter, we're going to learn that they sent Epaphroditus, who would bring encouraging words to him, as well as a gift of financial support to Paul. And to be honest, when I first read this text in the past, while serving in established churches, the financial aspect of the partnership with Paul that they're talking about here really didn't hit me so much. It's not that I didn't appreciate that our family was supported financially. I just didn't think much about how individuals were giving their tithes and their offering in order to make that possible, along with all the other ministry in the church. Well, I say I... I see that differently today. As a church plant, we are overwhelmingly on support from churches and individual Christians who are outside of Manhattan, as well as many of you who are sitting here today. A little over a year ago, we actually began meeting with fellow Christians, asking them to support this church plant through prayer and through partnering with us financially for a period of time, asking some of these people to sacrifice from their income to support this church plant that they may never personally benefit from at all. This was not an easy thing to do. 
It wasn't a natural thing for me. I'm not a salesman type of person. So it was incredibly awkward to sit down and ask this of people. But I'll tell you, it has grown our faith in ways that I never imagined. We've been encouraged by those families and individuals who have given because they believe in the vision or out of some love for us, or, or even more importantly, or most importantly, a love for the gospel with a vision to the wider kingdom of God, a love for all of us as they begin to hear about the work that God is doing here. And the truth is, we understand today in a greater way what it means to be partners in the gospel. For God to meet our needs spiritually, for God to meet our needs materially, all through partnership with other Christians. A common goal, a common purpose. That's also what we want you to feel here as you're part of Manhattan Presbyterian Church. Not that this is the church where you attend or where you go to worship at, but rather that you are a partner in the gospel with each other. Partners who pray for each other, who give financially, who understand that we are all going out during the week as messengers of our Savior, showing and telling the grace that comes through Jesus Christ alone. And then we gather here on Sunday, and we celebrate the grace that we have received, and, and the, the God that we have been loved by. It's a working together for something greater. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when Camille was born, I knew that we'd get to have our first baptism. And for me, that's the first baptism I've ever done, in case you're wondering why I was sweating and nervous. But the reality was, is when, when she was born, I was excited about this. And I thought, you know what, we have a baptistry because we have this trailer that a church in North Kansas City donated to us over a year ago, and it's packed full of stuff. I kind of just assume everything's in there. Monday, I went up there to get the baptistry out, and there was no baptistry. It's in the Shanahan's yards where we keep it. So anyway, there's no baptistry at all. So I call a pastor friend of ours at one of our sister churches in Kansas City to see if they still had their old one. And sure enough, they take their summer intern and made him go look for it. And this guy Sam goes looking for it and he finds it. And then Andrea said she'll pick it up and drive it back when she came back this weekend in her car. Well, as it would be, her car breaks down. So I call Pastor Tony Felice, who's the, the pastor back at Redeemer, and he sees our need and desire to help and, and to be a partner in the gospel. He lends Andrea his own car after filling it up with gas, and off she goes in the middle of the night with a baptistry in her back seat, and I imagine that would have been hard to explain if you'd gotten pulled over. And I mention this because all these little steps and very tangible ways that many people partner together in the gospel, and the end result was that we got to baptize baby Camille today, and at the end of that, we all made another commitment to partner in the gospel, right? This time with the cat you dolls, by agreeing to uh, assist them in the Christian nurture of baby Camille. And so when we partner together with the common goal of the gospel, then community is this beautiful thing, this aspect where God is glorified. And I want us to seek that, for that to be true of us as a church. Now I want you to also notice in our text that when Paul thinks of the Philippians, he turns to God in prayer and he thanks God for them. As Christians, our prayer should be saturated with thanks. Being thankful is an expression of joy. So thankfulness is certainly evidence of spiritual fruit in our lives. The reality also is this, that we have no shortage of things to be thankful for. Freedom from sin. Eternal life. Air in our lungs, at least for this very moment. For friends, for brothers and sisters in Christ, for roofs over our heads for food in our stomachs, eyes to see and faith to believe. May we never grow so entitled that we fail to express thankfulness to our Savior. Paul's thankfulness for their partnership ought to lead us to ask a few questions. Namely, are there people who, when you think of them, 
that you pray to God thanking him for them? You know, flipping that question around can be a little scarier exercise. Who might be thanking God today because you're in their life? For your encouragement, for your prayers, for your kindness, for your support. Now, if you can't think of anyone, I, I want you to be careful that you don't use this as an opportunity to complain that that person's lacking in your life. Rather, pray for God to give you that partnership and to make you the type of person who offers that sort of partnership. Notice also that, that Paul tells them how much he appreciates them. He tells that to them. He doesn't just appreciate them in his heart and then stop there. He tells them in words how much he appreciates them. When and where it is true, make it a priority in your life to let others who are a blessing to you, let them know what a blessing they have been to you. Now as we move on, I want to tell you about something I've observed in my life and really just the world around me. Now, people often begin things and then they never complete them. I'm not the only one to, to see that, right? Laura and I, some years ago, actually before we ever came to Kansas, we took this mission trip that was deep into Mexico. Not the border, but actually deep into Mexico. And this meant we had to drive through the countryside a bit. We traveled in vans and over and over again through the countryside, we saw this same image over and over again. And I imagine if you've ever done this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There were cinder block homes and businesses, these buildings that were halfway or, or maybe a quarter of the way or three quarters of the way complete. Sometimes they even went to the trouble of painting them, but over and over again were these buildings that were just halfway built, and, and it was a, just a surprise. Really, it was a surprise as I began to ask the locals that most of these buildings never actually get finished. It's like as an entire country, they set out to build thousands of buildings and then change their mind halfway through. I think the reality, though, is they're kind of like New Year's resolutions in our, our country. Big hopes for success and completion, only to give up and quit fairly soon right after that. Our God is not like that. If God starts something, he finishes it. That's exactly what we see here in verse 6 in our text. I want you to follow along with your own eyes as I read it out loud. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You see, the God who created the entire universe completes what he begins earth and stars, many galaxies, over 8 million species on this planet, man and woman, created and completed, all before God rested on the seventh day. You see, we may give up easily, but God does not. He finishes whatever it is he begins, and this is a teaching in scripture that should be a great comfort to us as believers. And this is one of many examples that explains why theology does matter in our day-to-day -day lives. If we are to believe verse 6 in Philippians 1, I mean really believe this, and we are, then we must believe in the sovereignty of God. We must believe that there is nothing outside of his control, because if God is to keep us, to bring us to completion, then he must be powerful enough to do so. If he were simply waiting to see what decision we might make, he simply could not make that promise. Because of this text and a few others that, that add further support, we believe in a doctrine that has been labeled perseverance of the saints. Maybe you've heard. What you call it's not important, but what it means is very important. It means that no one whom God has brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ will ever be lost. God will sustain them to the end. That all saints, that's all who are Christians, will persevere 
they will remain Christians until the end of their life when they come into the presence of God or Jesus Christ returns. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. And this is because God will sustain you. Our text is seemingly vague in regards to the one who began a a work in us. Really, Paul's assuming that the answer is so obvious to us. It's God who began a good work in us. In the Gospel of John 6.44, we see clearly that God initiates salvation. It reads, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, we hear that this work has begun before the world was even created. It says, speaking of God, he, he chose us and Him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are traveling in the city of Antioch and, and they go out and they proclaim the gospel to a crowd that's gathered. And after they state clearly that Jesus has died for their sins, in verse 48 we read this. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, our confidence is often in our ability to keep the law or or to be good, to put it in simple terms, or or to, to will ourselves to just keep believing in Christ, to keep holding on to Christ with all our might. But... The reality of the work that God is doing in us is very different. Last week, we took a trip as a family. We went on a hike out to the Kanza. If you haven't done it, it's absolutely beautiful this time of year. Everything's green and lush, and and I highly recommend it, but that's not why I'm mentioning it. We hiked on the two-and-a-half-mile loop, and and Berkeley, being four years old, really made it about halfway, and I was impressed with that. Uh, After that, Laura picked her up and carried her for a while, and and then I took her and I, I placed her up on my shoulders. When I did, she, she did what little kids often do. She grabbed my head and where I can't see and it hurts. And, you know, she's panicking. She's holding on to me with, with this grip of hers. Well, the reality was I had this tight grip on her legs, uh, holding on to my, my shoulders. But, but she had no confidence in that. She, she didn't know what was going on. She had no idea. And so she really would panic every time I moved to the left or the right. And so eventually I told her, Berkeley, try to climb off my shoulders. And she tried, and I just held on to her. And she couldn't move a bit. Because the reality is, I'm stronger than her. I'm much stronger than her. She's four. I'm not stronger than many people, but I'm stronger than her. She had to learn that she wasn't secure on my shoulders because of her grip on me. She was secure on my shoulders because of my grip on her. You and I often need to learn this as well. The same lesson regarding our Heavenly Father. We are not eternally secure because of our grip on Jesus Christ. We are secure because of our Savior's grip on us. So this isn't to say that we shouldn't cling to Jesus, just not with fear, not with with doubts like that. We cling to Jesus with love, uh, more like a a hug than it is a desperation that somehow it's up to us to hold on to him. Security in Jesus' grip on us is exactly what we see in John 6. Verses 37 and 39 say this. Jesus speaking, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Again, a few chapters later in John 10, 
27 and 30, Jesus makes this analogy of a, a shepherd and a sheep. Of course, Jesus is the shepherd and, and we as people are the sheep. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I mean, the goal in, in showing you this is not to convince you of some doctrine to intellectually believe in. I mean, it is that, but that's not the ultimate goal. It's, it's to give you real-world confidence that God will sustain you. That because salvation is a work of God beginning to end, and not a work of man, you can rest in his grip on you. You might say, though, you know, I'm not really sure God's working in me. I mean, I still gossip, I still lust, I, I'm still bitter. I still struggle with sin of all sorts. Laura and I, the, the last eight years before we came out here, had the privilege to minister to high school students over those years, and we were always surprised by the students who would come to us at times fearful that they were not Christians. And they'd give reasons. I don't read my Bible as often as, as I really should, as you know, other Christians do. I'm mean to my siblings. I'm rude to my parents. I, I have doubts at times. Sometimes I just don't believe this. I struggle with this sin or, or, or that sin. And we'd ask them, why do you even care? That's the question to ask, right? Why do you even care? And, and more times than not, their answer was along the line, something of, well, I want to be a Christian. I'm just afraid that I'm not. You know what we told them? We told them, you know that desire in you to want to follow Christ? That's the active work of the Holy Spirit in you. The natural man or woman who does not have faith does not care he or she does not have faith. They don't struggle with sin. They're either unaware of it, refusing to even acknowledge it as sin, or, or they embrace it. Truth is, I'm more concerned with the person who's not asking these questions because they don't care than I am the person who is asking them because they do care. Some years ago, Eternity Magazine, I didn't know this magazine existed, once published a story about C.S. Lewis's interaction with a young atheist student uh, via handwritten letters. This is back in the day. They'd write back and forth, and I guess you could write to C.S. Lewis, and he'd actually respond. This atheist student, among their conversations, eventually began to reveal some doubts in his views, doubts of his atheism. That is to say, he started thinking that, you know, maybe God does exist as he's been revealed in Scripture. And to that, Lewis responded very simply. This is a great response. He says, I think you are already in the meshes of the net. The Holy Spirit is after you. I doubt you'll get away. That was it. Lewis saw the work of God in this young man even before he saw it himself. Speaking of his covenant people, God in Jeremiah 31.3 says this. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That's what I want you to understand. Paul, in verse 6, is speaking from a place of confidence that God has chosen to love us, and he will continue to love us forever. So you might struggle with sin. You might struggle with doubt. But rest assured that if your faith is in Christ, God is at work in you. And the key word there is, rest and the word assured until you realize that you can't rely upon yourself you won't know what it means to rely upon christ i think we all want sanctification 
uh, to be more holy, to be more like, like Jesus, but we don't get there by our own strength. We get there by trusting in Jesus Christ. And James Montgomery Boyce said this regarding sanctification. He said, sanctification means discovering how sinful you are and learning to turn to Jesus for hourly forgiveness and cleansing. The practical application of this is something you can likely put to use today. You know, next time the Holy Spirit convicts you of of some sin in your life, perhaps feelings of, of unrighteous anger at another or selfishness or complaining, maybe even embarrassment of, of being a Christian or some terrible choice you might make. Whatever it is, don't turn away from God feeling unworthy. Turn to Him, knowing you are unworthy, but also knowing that you are loved with an everlasting love, love that is secure because God has began a work in you and God always finishes what He starts My hope is that this gives you a greater desire to follow Christ, to live for God, the God who loves you and and has secured you eternally. So while you at times may struggle, remember verse 6 and and many other places in Scripture that these are here to remind us that because of Jesus Christ, the struggles in this life are as close to hell as we're ever going to be. Ever. Ever. I want you to look back at this text again. Let's look briefly at verses 7 and 8. I'll I'll read them again. 7 and 8 say this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affections of Jesus Christ. The need of grace is a universal need. Here's Paul. I mean, if you want to think about, you know, who's someone who kind of has it all together? Paul, right? Yet he's clear that we are all partakers in grace, including him, together. The most sanctified person on this planet needs grace just as much as the most filthy sinner walking this planet. And that's really the foundation of what unites us in the church. We might come from different backgrounds. We might have different views on government, on parenting, education, uh, or even just personalities that don't mesh well. You know, those things can be overcome by something greater that unites us as a church. We are all mutually partakers of grace. We all look to Jesus for forgiveness and for salvation. And that doesn't mean we won't have conflict. We will. But it means we're going to work through that conflict. We will seek forgiveness when we sin against someone. We will grant forgiveness to those who sin against us because we have been forgiven ourselves through Jesus Christ. And that's unity that is eternal and and which is deeper than mere common interests or common place of work or, or anything else that tends to unite us with people. We need to know that. We need to know that these are relationships which we need, even if they aren't always easy. And I'll tell you this, that this is what we're really looking for. Not Facebook. It's the truth. I mean, I, I'm an addict of Facebook. I need to kick it. But the reality is this. We need friendships with deep roots in the soil of God's grace. Let me read that again. We need friendships with deep roots in the soils of God's grace. 
The last thing I want us to see in this text is this. Paul is known for his theology. You know, you tend to think of him as a, a head guy. Uh, he's reasonable. He argues with, with just amazing intellectual ability. Uh, he's known for his theology. But, but I want you to notice here that he is very emotional as well. He says in verse 7 that he holds them in his heart. He says in verse 8, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with an affection of Christ Jesus. Calling God as a witness is to assure them that this isn't mere flattery. That was common in letters. Just to say these nice things, it's common today. You know, we get junk emails that, that just flatter us with how great we are. And he's calling in the name of God to say, he's my witness. This is not just empty words. I really mean this, and I need you to know that. And so Paul wants them to know just how much he loves them and cares for them. The word affection in this verse, this is one of those interesting translations. It's, it's literally all of my entrails, which is my guts, right? All those nasty things, your liver and stomach, and I don't actually know what it makes up. You're never going to see this on a Hallmark card. But he is expressing his love in, in this deep manner here, saying, I yearn for you with all my guts. It's beautiful, isn't it? I want this to be a model for us. To pray for great affections for your brothers and sisters in the church and for others who need the gospel. Even if you're more naturally reserved, some of us are, that's just the way it is, but pray that God would give you strength to show your love for others to them. What we see in Paul is what I desire for us. In a sense, a real living out of the two great commandments which are given by Christ. To love God with all your mind, yes. Love also with your heart, with your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says he loved with the affections of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. That should be our prayer as we live in community. God, how can I love them like you love them? As we finish, let me give you a few questions that arise out of our text. And these are questions for you to ponder as you go this week. Number one, how am I partnering with with others for the sake of the gospel? How am I partnering with others for the sake of the gospel? Number two, how does the truth that God will finish the work he began in me help me to find rest and Jesus' unbreakable grip on me? Number three, are my emotions involved in my love for God and my love for others? Uh, if not, if that's a struggle for you, I'd encourage you to open up to Psalm 42. That's a, a prayer just asking for, for the affections of for God. I pray through that. 